Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Putin's plan. World leaders condemn Moscow's ordering of troops into eastern Ukraine. Sanctions step up. The EU and US prepared to respond as Germany blocks the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And sentiment sours. Stock prices fall as oil nears $100 a barrel. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Thank you for joining us. It's a day where the prospect of open conflict looms large over Europe. This after President Putin's decision to formally recognize the independence of two breakaway regions in eastern Ukraine and order troops into the region. The international condemnation was swift. The U.S. and its allies are expected to respond with new sanctions in the coming hours. Germany has already announced it will halt the certification of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that was expected to increase Europe's reliance on Russian gas. The reaction on global markets also swift. First and foremost, in the commodities market, take a look at this. Oil prices, as you can see there, are surging. Brent up almost 5%. Crude up just over 3%, but also in the agriculture markets too. Corn and wheat prices are soaring. Just to give you some context, Ukraine and Russia provide 30% of global wheat exports. This, of course, just exacerbating the global inflationary fears. What about for stock markets? Well, sentiment also there dented by the ramp up in tensions and the sheer uncertainty, I think, over what comes next. But it is a mixed picture, as you can see. Europe was the underperformer, though, as you can see, Asia had a very tough session too. U.S. futures are interesting. You can see the follow through from what we're seeing in France and the U.K. too, currently well off the lows that we saw overnight. Trading floors, of course, were closed on Monday. It's a resilient showing. I think perhaps some of the concern is being tempered by the realization that it's tough for the Federal Reserve to hike. It's tough to hike even just a quarter of a percent, but certainly not more in that March meeting, given the geopolitical backdrop. Plus, the context here key too, we're already down over 9% from the January highs in the S&P 500. What about elsewhere? Well, no real sign of flight to safety in sovereign bonds. I can give you a quick look at what we're seeing in terms of the yields for German 10-year bonds and the US 10-year bonds. Prices are steady. We've got gold a tiny touch higher, but not much to speak about. The real story is in precious palladium and platinum, again, important Russian exports. What's clear is that there is a price to pay and for this aggression, and Russia is paying it. Take a look at these. You're looking at the RTS index, the MOEX index, which is the Russian ruble-denominated stock market, currently off some 2%. That plunged 10% during the session on Monday. The ruble is currently at its weakest level in more than a year and close to record lows. And that's before we get more concrete details of what sanctions from the United States and its allies may look like much to discuss. Let's get to the drivers. Moscow has not confirmed whether Russian troops entered eastern Ukraine overnight. This after President Putin agreed to recognize breakaway areas and announced plans to send in what he calls peacekeeping troops. Now, despite all that, Russia says it's still open to talks with the United States. Ukraine's President Zelensky, meanwhile, downplaying the threat of war. Just listen to what he had to say a few hours ago. As regards the military um, uh, footing, uh, we understand that there will be no war. There will not be an all-out war against Ukraine. And uh, there will not be an escalation, um, a broad escalation from Russia. If there is, then we will put Ukraine on a war footing. 
His call also for a rapid international response seemingly heard. The EU will announce sanctions this afternoon. Britain is already targeting banks and wealthy individuals. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is in Lviv in western Ukraine near the Polish border. Matthew Chance is in the capital, Kiev, for us. Gentlemen, welcome. Nick, I'll come to you first. Swift condemnation, but differences in the handling of whether or not this is considered an invasion when you look around the world. Also confusion over what troops are doing, whether or not Russian troops have crossed the border. What more do we know? little, to be honest. And I should point out in all of this, Russian troops have been in eastern Ukraine for eight years, not necessarily wearing uniforms or declared as such. But the separatist movements there have received long-term assistance um, from the Russian military and the Russian military were involved in their initial move. So the question really is, since the order given by President Putin last night to provide these what he called peacekeepers to assist uh, freshly recognised by Russia, Donetsk People's Republic, have we seen new troops go in? And it is not clear at this stage that they necessarily have. And you might expect, uh, given the sort of choreographic nature of what we saw yesterday, that if those troops did go in, they would indeed be highly visible. But the reaction from the West, while you might argue that some of these, this incremental measure by Vladimir Putin, certainly not the full-fledged invasion that Western officials had been uh, warning about for weeks or months, you might argue that while his move was possibly incremental, not the worst option he could have done at this stage, we may see this escalating over the weeks ahead, the reaction from the West has been pretty harsh so far. Certainly I did not expect Germany to, at this stage, cancel or delay the certification of Nord Stream 2. That's a huge move and we've already seen um, Russian officials suggesting that will have a huge impact on the gas price in the market in the years and weeks ahead but also to the British measures you mentioned as well against very uh, high profile uh, Russians uh, who have assets in the United Kingdom and we wait to see quite what the US will do as well. So this may play into Vladimir Putin's calculation. It's unclear whether he thinks he's done enough damage uh, to himself uh, by this smaller move and uh, to Russia as well or whether he feels there's nothing to lose and it's worth continuing. But it is frankly unclear quite what this uh, move to recognise these two republics has done in terms of changing things on the ground if we haven't seen Russian uniform new personnel enter into those separatist areas and there is still a confusion also as to exactly what has been recognised the territorial scope of that area the separatists control parts of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions not all of them although they had ambitions to control all of them so that will continue to be a, a moment of lacking clarity but that's frankly what you get if the decision maker is one man who seems to make his decisions by himself but still very perilous moment, certainly, but the sanctions are uh, relatively swift and fierce. Yeah, an important distinction that you make, this would be fresh troops. There are already troops there. Uh, Matthew, come in here, please, because Nick called it a, a huge move. I was going to call it a dramatic decision from the Germans today to halt the certification of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which would have increased the vulnerability of Europe in terms of their imports of European of Russian gas does this provide a deterrent effect, despite the bravado that we've seen from the Russians this morning in response to that? Does it provide the deterrent effect that Germany's hoping for? I mean, it might do. Um, you know, that's certainly the intention, I expect, uh, that they want to make sure that this conflict, uh, which has been, as Nick rightly pointed out, underway for the past eight years, um, and has been escalating over the past several months with the deployment of tens of thousands of forces near Ukraine's border. And then last night with the recognition, recognition by Vladimir Putin of those two separatist rebel republics doesn't expand any further. And of course, that's 
the big concern at the moment, that that recognition by the Kremlin of those rebel republics is just the start, uh, potentially, of a much bigger sort of military um, slash political you know, incursion by the Russian authorities. The reason for that is this, is that the rebels in the east of the country, they control just a small area of the territory that they claim, which is a much bigger area. Uh, there are cities that are controlled by the Ukrainian government at the moment that the rebels want as theirs. And so the big concern at the moment is whether the war will restart uh, you know, in its full-blown capacity in, in the east of the country. And rebel forces, backed by Russian tanks perhaps, will move out from their current positions and try to grab land that they claim as being part of their now recognised by Russia independent uh, state. That hasn't happened at the moment, of course, uh, but it's something that could happen in the future. Um, it's not clear at the moment from the Kremlin about whether they support that kind of maximalist uh, definition of those, uh, those separatist republics or whether they want the, the separatists to kind of stay in their box and to stay in their, their current uh, area that they control. But it is a big concern that this could be this small recognition or this recognition of these, um, of these rebel republics could be the start of something much, much bigger. There's a, there's a broader concern as well, which is that the tone of Vladimir Putin's speech last night, mm. the anger with which he was talking and redefining uh, Ukrainian uh, statehood as being an artificial state that was essentially created by the Soviet Union, drawing on Russia's ancient lands, you know, it gives the impression that in the future, you know, he wouldn't have any problem at all about redrawing Ukraine's borders as and when he sees fit. And so, yeah, there are these two kind of looming concerns uh, hanging over the situation at the moment. Uh, we've seen Vladimir Putin now recognise these republics in the east of the country. Is that the end of this round of escalation or is it just the start of something much bigger? It's a great question. And Nick, I'm going to throw it to you because I think anybody watching the, the bitter vent against Ukraine yesterday by Vladimir Putin and the stage theatrics that took place earlier on in the day will perhaps argue it felt like overkill if just signing a piece of paper and acknowledging the independence of these two breakaway states and perhaps sending in further troops is the end game here. Yeah, it wasn't a performance designed to dispel any fears that Vladimir Putin may have been a bit on his own, a bit isolated mm. during the pandemic. Even when he met his top security officials, he was metres away from them, kind of talking via microphone as he dressed his foreign intelligence chief down, demanded he talk plainly and told his deputy chief of the presidential administration, Dmitry Kozak, to speak up at one point. That was a remarkable scene. And then the speech itself, 57 minutes in length, rambling through Soviet history, Ukraine's history, taking a brief break to get upset the Bill Clinton snubbed him 22 years ago. It was remarkable. It seemed like his audience was himself, or possibly, if you delve into criminology, maybe people seeking to change the balance of power between individuals inside that very closed building in Moscow. But it certainly gave you the impression that He's not done in airing his grievances and that he conceives Ukraine to have a very minimal right to exist as a nation. He perceives NATO as already here. He described that their missions to train Ukrainian forces were basically bases and that Ukraine would be a platform for NATO to attack Russia. An elaborate series of justifications, as Matthew points out, that may well be part of what 
we see Russia leaning on in any future action. And I think of all the things we saw yesterday, the recognition of republics that have always, frankly, been run by Russia, were created under a Russian scheme eight years ago, was not in itself particularly shocking. It was a lesser option for the Kremlin. It was that speech he gave and the mentality that it exposed, I think, left... Um, certainly left me thinking that there may be more to come and that certainly we may be seeing less of the rational actor Vladimir Putin than people have liked to champion him as over the past decades or so. I'd say his advocates, not his critics. Nick Peyton Bosch, great to get your insights. Thank you. And Matthew Chance there too. In the meantime, and as we've discussed, Germany taking action. Chancellor Olaf Scholz has halted the certification of Nord Stream 2, the pipeline that was set to double Russian gas exports to Germany in response, of course, to Moscow's latest move. Former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev responding to Germany's decision, tweeting German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has issued an order to halt the process of certifying the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. Well, welcome to the brave new world where Europeans are very soon going to pay 2,000 euros for one cubic meter of natural gas. Nina Dos Santos joins me now. Bravado from the Russians. An incredibly difficult decision for the Germans to take at this moment when Europe already faces an energy crisis with consumers paying very high prices. That's right. And this was supposed to provide about 50 billion cubic meters per year to the German consumers, enough to affordably heat about 26 million people's homes over there, badly needed at a time when, of course, there is, as you pointed out, a spike in energy prices and also concerns about the reliability of the largest uh, provider of gas to this part of the world, which is, of course, Russia. Remember that Germany already depends upon Russia for about a third of its gas needs. And Nord Stream 2 would have made it even more beholden on Russia as a supplier. Um, now, obviously, this decision has come amid intense pressure. The German government, successive German governments since Nord Stream 2 was started in 2015, have consistently tried to say that this is just a commercial project, a commercial arrangement, but uh, it has never really been that. It's always been a lever of geopolitical influence. And the real concern people had here with regards to Ukraine is that the moment Nord Stream 2 would have been opened, it would have essentially nullified the role of uh, Ukraine and also Belarus. Belarus and Poland as transit countries for other pipelines pumping Russian gas uh, towards this part of the world. And as a result, what that would have done is would have made it more easy for Russia to have more military and other influence in uh, parts of the world like, for instance, Ukraine. So for this reason... This has been stopped at the late stage. However, a lot of people here in this part of the world, Julia, as you well know, are aghast at the fact that the German government could have let this go right until the last minute. This is a pipeline that has cost Gazprom, the Russian-backed uh, gas company, $11 billion to build. It was completed in September. It's been pumped full of gas and is full and ready to go, except at this late stage, Germany has decided that they have put a hiatus on that certification process. The question is, will the United States and other gas providers make up the difference for Europe's largest economy? And also, what other sanctions can be punitive to Russia and implemented from here? Julia? Yes, absolutely. And can Russia replace those lost revenues too? Lots of questions. Mm -hmm. Nina Dos Santos, thank you for that. Now, a top U.S. official says the White House will impose additional sanctions on Russia. Deputy National Security Advisor John Feiner said significant steps will be announced in the coming hours. President Biden signed an executive order imposing targeted sanctions on the breakaway regions of Donetsk and Luhansk on Monday. John Howard joins us now from the White House. John, great to have you with us. They felt symbolic. 
the announcement yesterday after we saw uh, the announcement of um, the declaration, at least, of independence from Russia. The last thing Joe Biden wants to be accused of here is appeasing Russia. Should we expect aggressive sanctions now in response? Well, I think we should, Julia, because there's been a big change in tone uh, overnight. Last night, of course, after uh, Russia uh, and Vladimir Putin did what they did yesterday, the administration, uh, in a call with reporters, was equivocating on whether this actually constituted an invasion. Uh, what we've heard this morning from John Finer, the deputy national security advisor, is a characterization that this is an invasion. And coupled with the response from Germany, that is halting the certification of Nord Stream 2, that says that the Western alliance, the United States, Germany, uh, other members of NATO, are willing to begin paying the price that will uh, involve economic blowback for the U.S. economy, for the European economy, in order to uh, sanction uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia, notwithstanding that taunt uh, from uh, Dmitry uh, Medvedev that you uh, uh, read earlier. Now, the question is, uh, how much of the full package of sanctions will we see today? We won't see all of it. Uh, a senior administration official told me today, if we're going to deter Vladimir Putin from taking Kiev and the entire uh, country of Ukraine, we've got to hold some sanctions back uh, as a lever, as uh, uh, a, an additional potential deterrent. But we are going to see significant sanctions, uh, and we may hear from uh, President Biden directly uh, during the course of the day. There's no confirmation of that, uh, but uh, you clearly have a stepped-up tone and tenor from the White House today. Yeah, there has to be some fear of the unknown, it seems. John Harwood, we'll see. Thank you so much for that. Okay, straight ahead here on First Move, more from Ukraine. We'll hear from a former government minister who warns of severe costs for the country if the crisis continues. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The Ukraine crisis reverberating in economies around the world and within Ukraine itself, bracing for billions of dollars of economic pain and lost investment, currency depreciation and sheer uncertainty. Just one example, Ukraine is a major exporter of wheat and corn. At a time when food prices are near a 10-year high, supply interruptions could drive them higher worldwide. Much to discuss. Uh, Timothy Milovanov is the former Ukrainian Minister of Economic Development, Trade and Agriculture and joins us now. So great to have you on the show. I want to talk about the economic costs, but first and foremost, just to get your take on what we've seen in the last 24 hours and the decision and announcements from Vladimir Putin. Yes, you know, I'm currently in Kiev, so it's a little bit more, you know, it feels much more real than, mm. uh, you know, last week I was in the U.S. Uh, people here are still relatively quiet, but uh, everyone was shocked uh, by yesterday's announcement of recognition of um, these separatist breakaway regions, and people, some people were worried and, you know, kind of bracing themselves for imminent uh, deterioration of the situation, but it looks like the sanctions or the rhetoric um, in the EU and the US and Canada has um, you know, been stepped up and uh, that brings some relief. And uh, we are hopeful that the sanctions will work and will be able to deter, uh, but a part of me thinks that it will come down, down to the strength of the army in the end. Hopefully we won't see that, but we should be ready. You're fearing war. Timothy, are you saying you fear war? You said it comes down to the army. Are you fearing war? Concerned that, uh, you know, 
you know, okay, we have been in the war for eight years and there's been constant shelling in the East. Of course, over the last weeks, it has been, uh, you know, it has intensified. Uh, but, you know, I've been talking to people around Kiev today and at my university and, you know, some people worry that there will be some uh, action in the East at the very least. And so people fear that, yes, and the economy responds to that too. Uh, but, you know, most people now have backup plan, you know, contingency planning, where they move, what they do, in which conditions. So it feels very, very, you know, somber. Yeah. Let's talk about the economic cost. As you said, if people are talking about leaving or, or certainly moving out to the east or beyond, we've seen international airlines cancelling flights because the insurance costs are soaring. The cost of insuring ships in the Black Sea, for example, is rising. Do you have any sense and can you quantify the kind of cost that's already been borne by the Ukrainian economy? Yes, we have a report at the Kiev School of Economics, uh, where currently the president and we work for the government to and provide these reports. And our estimates, just from the blockade and harassment of the expert routes, uh, routes, uh, the cost would be between half percent GDP to three plus percent GDP um, a uh, a month. So if this situation continues, even if uh, nothing happens kinetically, if there is no major military action outside of this breakaway uh, regions, uh, there will be substantive loss um, because agriculture and some of metallurgy and some of other commodities, it would be difficult to export. There will be high logistic costs. And I think uh, we even have an estimate that the cost of wheat uh, uh, worldwide might go up as much as 8 9%. That's one example. The other example is access to capital markets, capitalization of the car um, of the companies in Ukraine, overall logistical costs and uh, diversion of uh, uh, of investment from development projects. I mean, there's much to discuss there. What kind of scenario creates a eight percent rise in wheat prices around the world? What was the scenario that you were you were forecasting or modeling for that? So Ukraine uh, has a share of wheat production or export uh, in the world trade uh, between 8 and 11 percent. And uh, that's a very little known story that uh, before the annexation of Crimea in 2013, it only had 3 percent. So it's a rising giant in a way. Um, Russia has depends on the year and harvest between 18 and 20 percent. And locally in this region for the Middle East, for some of the Asian countries and for Africa, this is going to be a major uh, trader. So this is a source of uh, wheat for a number of important countries. Uh, if this uh, supply will be disrupted, uh, and it's probably going to be disrupted both for Ukraine and Russia, so you're going to have a temporary shortage uh, of, uh, you know, a substantive part of the market. So the, there will be substitution effects, and so the demands will go up and the prices will rise up. So there are models. Uh, there are general, this is jargon, you know, economists use general equilibrium models, which estimate mm. substitution effects, logistical costs, and those models produce 8 to 9% uh, temporarily increase in, co uh, in prices. What do you think, based on your understanding of both economics and financial markets, is the best way to sanction Russia, the most efficient way to sanction Russia at this stage and to have the greatest deterrent effect? Okay, so one, of course, is obviously access to financial markets. Uh, and there's been talk today about sanctioning uh, Russian debt, uh, sanctioning Russian banks, but also you can central even the Central Bank of Russia. Uh, that's what's on the on the kind of on the surface. Uh, much more interesting, much more difficult issue is energy. 
uh, Europe relies on Russia for gas and uh, other energy supplies, and it's not easy to diversify away. But at the same time, Russia also relies on Europe to export. And, you know, it's uh, more than half percent of uh, its export revenues coming from energy. Um, and it's also not easy for Russia to diversify. So all kinds of uh, all kinds of policies which will make it costlier for Russia or will tax them on the revenues which comes back to Russia from selling gas and oil uh, might be an effective deterrent in the end of the day. So the halting of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, even if Russia responds yes. with a flippant response, actually is a, a smart way to tackle Russia at this moment. Yes, yeah, so uh, there is, this is true, but also not just because of money and the export issues, but because Russia is using Nord Stream 2 to pitch some European countries against each other. Uh, because providing, you know, more supplies through one pipeline rather than the other creates some disagreements because it provides gas at different prices to different countries. And so internal lobbies, uh, industrial lobbies, they have a little bit of a conflict. So for the EU, it would be great to have a unified front in dealing on the energy policies with uh, Russia. And so uh, not certifying Nord Stream 2 is a, a strategic step, not only financially, but also in terms of uh, providing fewer opportunities for the for Russia to create conflict within the EU countries. Do you think creating a stranglehold, undermining confidence in Ukraine's economy is part of, of Putin's plan? And yes, and it has been on... Sorry, yeah. No, I was just going to say, I, in terms of the response from the Europeans, from the United States, does there have to be a financial response to support Ukraine too at this moment, to try and offset some of that loss in confidence? Some people say, and I agree with that view, that you know Ukraine is uh, quite resilient in terms of economy and because this kind of economic harassment has been going on for a while. It's a part of uh, war suppression strategy and actually started before the annexation of Crimea in 2014. The embargo or harassment increasing you know, tariffs on trade and agriculture uh, was done by Russia as early as 2012. So, yes, there is a cost. Uh, it's continuous and it's done in multiple ways. And most of them we have not really been discussing. But, you know, I served in the government. I served on the central bank uh, supervisory board. I had a number uh, of positions. And every time we saw some kind of different uh, approaches in economic warfare from Russia. Now, what is the smart way to deal with that, to provide uh, support to Ukrainian economy? Of course, because you have a more resilient Ukrainian economy uh, that translates immediately in security situation. Uh, you know, there's more confidence domestically, there is less political infighting, uh, there is more ability to support and have resilient military, um, substitute logistical uh, paths if needed, and all kind of other the economic uh, issues uh, could be resolved with the support. So, yeah, I would argue that support is as important, economic support and financial support is as important as military and diplomatic support at this point. Yeah. Timothy, great to chat to you, sir. Thank you for your time and uh, stay safe, please. President of the Kiev School Thank of you. Economics and former Ukrainian Minister of Economic Development, Trade and Agriculture. Thank you, sir. The market opens next. Thanks. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. We've just had the opening bell over on Wall Street and U.S. stocks are trading for the first time since Putin acknowledged the independence of breakaway regions in East Ukraine and ordered troops across the border. Considerable uncertainty remains 
as to whether or not that's happened, of course. But we are seeing that uncertainty reflected in financial markets. The Dow off some eight-tenths of one percent at this stage. The Nasdaq also off eight-tenths of one percent. Remember, markets were closed yesterday, so there's catch-up taking place for these markets too. Over in commodities land, that's where we're really seeing the price action shifting. Brent crude up more than five percent at this stage. WTI up some three and a half percent in the session. Christine Romans joins me now to discuss. Christine, I'm actually quite surprised by the lack of response for stock markets. Admittedly, we're off almost 10 percent from from recent highs or the January highs. But I just wonder whether some of the alarm here is being tempered by the fact that we have a Federal Reserve now that we're watching the geopolitics of this situation and thinking whatever the inflationary threat, um, perhaps our hands are going to be tied. Yeah, and that's a very, very good point. And also, it's early, early days. We don't know what's going to happen next uh, with Vladimir Putin. We know there's a Ukraine obsession that is contributing to an awful lot of uh, destabilized instability in the region. And how will that factor into the global uh, inflation story? So we are in the early days of how this will actually play out. A lot of people are going back to 2014 in Crimea and looking at stocks, you know, three months and six months past, trying to look for any kinds of clues, really, about what what this means uh, in terms of stability in Ukraine and in Europe. Um, I heard one analyst this morning was telling me there are three to five bad outcomes for Ukraine any way you slice it. How, what, what level of bad is the outcome for, from Ukraine? You just had that fantastic guest talking about the grain part of the story. That is really important. Um, it is, Ukraine is the breadbasket bread to Europe and feeds an awful lot of, of Africa and the Middle East. So this is a story with, with ripples effects, ripple effects around the world. Oil prices are already zeroing in on $100 a barrel. In the U.S., you've got um, gas prices already up some 20 cents over the past couple of weeks and zeroing in in the summer to $4 probably for the national average. So the inflation story here is still the big driver. And Vladimir Putin's moves only adding to that story. I think you raise such a great point that we tend to see in the short term noise for stocks when we see these geopolitical spikes in tension wherever they are in the world. But you tend to see the reaction honing in on the most specific elements, be it commodities prices, wheat prices, corn prices, oil prices in this case, or indeed the Russian markets themselves that I mentioned at the beginning of the show. The aggression is being felt in very specific pockets of the market, which is rational, I think. It's interesting too the reaction to the ruble and to the into Russian stocks, and it's almost when you look at some of the moves and Reuters and the Wall Street Journal have done some good reporting on this about uh, the stockpiling of foreign currency um, mm-hmm. in Russia uh, starting last year, right in December. Those the stockpiling of foreign foreign currency was something double what it was a, a year prior. So these making these moves to try to buffer Russia, trying to buffer itself from what will be potentially Western blowback for these moves. But it feels as though when you look at the last 15 years of things that Vladimir Putin has said and written uh, about Ukraine, it seems as though this is a strategy here. This isn't this isn't like Crimea, which is a one off. This this looks like it is the next piece of a a strategy for Vladimir Putin in terms of vis-a-vis Ukraine. And so the market implications of that, I think we just don't know yet. Yeah. Couldn't agree more, as always. Christine Romans, thank you for your insights. Okay, coming up here on First Move, many companies with operations in Ukraine playing a waiting game. One online business already taking steps to ensure its people's safety. More after the break.
Welcome back to First Move. And as we've already heard, Russia's actions could have a devastating impact on Ukraine's economy. But for some small business owners, the escalating tensions are already causing pain. As Michael Holmes reports. Lida Konyuk manages a small clothing and souvenir business in central Lviv, trying to ignore the drumbeat of possible war echoing around her country. The situation was a lot better after the new year, but now you can feel the difference. Less tourists means less business. Small business operators like Konyuk say these are tough times. No tourists and locals are hunkering down. First it was COVID lockdowns, now it's the threat of war keeping the cash register quiet. We don't know what will happen. No one knows it. The situation is difficult for sure. But if you ask what to do if it gets worse, then my answer is I don't know. The only thing I know for sure, I will stay here no matter what. Now, the pocketbook pain for ordinary Ukrainians is obvious, and nationally it is as well. GDP is down, investors have fled to the sidelines, and obviously an invasion would make everything that much worse. But experts say even if Putin's troops stay on the outside, things could be almost as grim as they apply an economic stranglehold on this country. Absolutely, because the war is not just, you know, again, kinetic or physical action. Uh, it's uh, it's also economic, it's cyber, it's diplomatic. And, you know, the, the businesses are suffering now um, and um, the, they are diverting resources from, in, from development, from business uh, investments into protecting operations. And so if, if it continues, that there will be there will be harassment, there will be damage. And so that's a part of pressure. Uh, not so many customers yeah. because uh, we are... Daria Borisenko manages a popular burger joint in Lviv. People are still coming in, but she's worried about what might come. Are you worried about how an invasion might affect business? Yes. It's, it's really hard because it's more psychology situation. Not only about food, not only about smiles, uh, it's uh, really nervous. Still, like virtually all Ukrainians we meet, she's both stoic and confident in her country. Are you worried about the war? Um, many of us, yes, uh, but uh, we are stay um, calm uh, because we understand if we will uh, be nervous uh, and uh, with uh, a different panic attack, it will be not so good for us. Like most Ukrainians, nervous but unafraid. Now, with tensions between Russia and Ukraine incredibly high, companies with operations in Ukraine are taking precautions amid threat of invasion. Just Answer is an online on-demand platform where people can ask experts in a variety of fields questions around the clock. The company has around 700 employees around the world in the United States, Manila and India. Around 260 of them are based in Ukraine, where it's had a presence since 2010. Now, Just Answer is taking steps to keep its employees and infrastructure in Ukraine safe in case of an invasion. Andy Kurtzik, CEO of Just Answer, joins me now. Andy, great to have you on the show. I know you have a platform that operates across, what, more than 190 different countries. Just how much of your time today is being spent crisis managing and protecting your employees in Ukraine? 
nearly all of it for the last couple of weeks, just getting ready for, for the worst, but hoping for the best. How are you preparing? So we have to think about all the different angles on what Putin might do up there. Obviously, he's already started doing uh, cyber uh, attacks on banks. So we got to figure out how to pay our employees if, if our bank gets attacked and our bank in Ukraine is one of the banks that was attacked uh, last week. We have to think about power. Putin's going to try to take out the power, going to try to take out communications. So we're getting uh, diesel generators for our office. We're getting uh, satellite phones and all kinds of different ways for communication. And then, of course, we're starting to move our, our employees from the east to the west and have already started doing that. So I mentioned well. you have 260 employees, and, and mostly they were already based in the West, I believe, but some were in Kyiv. Can you give me a sense of, of numbers? How many people are saying, look, I actually want to move West, I want to leave Kyiv? How many are staying, saying, I want to stay? So that's right. 19 of our folks are east of Lviv, and, and most of those are in Kyiv, but they're, those are all over. We're actually moving them and their families to one of three cities, either Lviv, Uzgorod, or Ivan Frankovic, where 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 uh, they may want to be, and about half of them have started to have either already moved or preparing to move now, and others are choosing to stay where they are. For those that are moving, can I ask if you're helping? I mean, for most people, if you're paying a mortgage or, or trying to pay rent, trying to find that for for a separate city is is close to impossible. Are, are you helping people with that? Of course, both logistically and financially, we're putting them up in hotels. We're we're giving them days off. We're for taking care of it for them. Thanks, Andy. Um, are people frightened? Very, we all are. It's it's a very difficult situation uh, and worse than, than ever. We've been there since 2010. We've seen a lot. We were there uh, when Yanukovych was president. We were there before, during the Maidan revolution, after the Maidan, when, when Russia has been, been battling on the East and Crimea and such. And, and this is the worst we've ever seen it. It's scary. It's terrible for our folks there. and. We're all just on edge. I mean, what you see in the, the, the headlines is the big stuff and the bombings of schools and things like that. But what's happening on the ground is is extensions of that. And so Putin is and, and his people are calling in bomb threats to our, our family, to our employees, kids schools often, like at least once or twice a week. And, uh, you know, taking out the Internet and banks and things like that. Right. Every single time the Internet goes out. They think war started. And we all get worried. You're portraying an incredibly frightening picture. I want to ask you about that. You mentioned bomb threats. Your children's schools have had, had bomb threats. You have no sense of where they're coming from, I'm assuming. That's right. But of course, they're related. Uh, they, they must be coming from Russia. And that's just part of the whole Russian plan of trying to keep Ukraine out of balance and uncertain and, and, and create fear. I mean, Putin is, is not just a bully, but is 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 you know very deceptive and is trying to maximize his his advantage with his military and with his misinformation campaigns andy i know you and your family spent time there in ukraine in, in 2019 you clearly have a ukrainian flag displayed behind you but you're you're sitting in san francisco in in, in california yourself um in many ways how hard is it as a leader of a business to be trying to manage, trying to protect your workers, but actually not being there? It's really hard. So it's, my family did a year abroad uh, and uh, and spent half of that in Ukraine and made 
we became friends with 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 all of our folks there and and made lots of friends when we were living there and and just really learned about Ukraine and the wonderful people and the history and the culture and the the ways of doing things. They're wonderful people just like you and I and and they just want democracy and freedom and the, the and, and the opportunity just like you know we get to have every day and so it's really hard to see you know Russia trying to pull them in the opposite direction right this is not just bad for Ukraine it's bad for the world this is a a, a blow against democracy and and so what just answers trying to do is is trying to do our best with what we have and that is to be pro democracy we're not going to run away we're not going to leave ukraine hanging we're not going to take our dollars away from ukraine we're committed to ukraine we're going to stay in ukraine and in fact we're going to grow in ukraine that's exactly what i was going to ask you you're committed so andy thank you so much thank you for what you're doing for your people as well and for the support and um we wish everybody well and uh, pray they stay safe andy kurtzik thank you see you just answer no thank you sir Okay, coming up after the break, more on the crisis in Ukraine. We'll have the very latest in a live report from Moscow. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Russia says it's still ready for talks with the United States, even after ordering troops into two separatist regions in eastern Ukraine. The Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman saying, quote, we are always in favour of diplomacy. Listen to President Putin's comparison of Ukraine to other post-Soviet nations in that light. After the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia recognized all the new geopolitical realities and, as you know, is actively working to strengthen our cooperation with all the independent countries that emerged in the post-Soviet space. We intend to work this way with all our neighbors, but with Ukraine, the situation is different. This is because, unfortunately, the territory of this country is being used by third countries to create threats against the Russian Federation itself. That is the only reason. Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, it feels like months ago, but a week ago, the the Russians were saying they were removing troops. The picture looks very different as a result of the last 24 hours. Based on what you've seen, do you think there's any room for diplomacy left? Yeah, I think if we sort of complete out what President Putin has been saying over the past 24 hours on Ukraine, it seems really unlikely. He's saying that it has an illegitimate government, that they came to power in a coup, that Ukraine is historically part of Russia. Now, this is uh, Putin's own sort of reinvention of history, if you like. And that's what we heard there when he said that uh, Ukraine is being used as a, a base to, you know, to foment danger for Russia. Um, what we are hearing uh, from Russian officials now is a sort of a, a backpedaling on what President Putin signed up to yesterday. He signed up to Russian forces going into Donetsk and Luhansk as uh, peacekeepers. But what we're being told, and a deputy foreign minister has just has just said this, and, and it, with the pre- presidential spokesman from the Kremlin said this earlier today, um, that although it is allowed for for Russian forces to go into these uh, parts of Ukraine. It isn't happening at the moment. That's what he's saying. They will go in if they're needed. Now, this sort of ambiguity that Russia is creating clearly is intended to temper and head off the potential for the harshest of sanctions that were threatened by the United States, by the EU, by others, if if Russia um, puts forces into Ukraine again. So, 
this, I, I go back to the ambiguity of it because it's very hard to know precisely what Russia's doing. The international consensus has been, although Russia denies it, is that they've been supporting advising, providing equipment, uh, supplies for those uh, pro-Russian separatist rebels in, in those eastern parts of Ukraine over the past number of years. Um, the formality of Russian forces actually going over the border seems like a line now that they are drawing back from that they don't want to publicly acknowledge. But um, I, I think this is an all the usual caveats that we hear from Western officials, um, what they say and scrutiny on what they actually do and are doing right now, Julia. President Putin is very effective at shifting the goalposts. Effectively, with one signature yesterday, you could argue that he sliced off two more chunks of Ukraine to add to Crimea. And now, as you said, we're sort of talking about troop positioning rather than this declaration that is the negotiating point that he now sits at. Are the sanctions that we are seeing and yet to see, Nick, going to be appropriate in your mind for what's happened in the last uh, 24 it, hours? Yes. Uh, so we're beginning to see the sanctions on individuals, on banks in the UK, you know, individuals that might have raised finance for, for business ventures that would have been beneficial for the, for the Kremlin, similar lines coming out from the EU. I don't think what we're seeing so far is the full ramifications of those incredibly hard and swift sanctions uh, that we were told would be coming. And I think what we're seeing so far, Putin has already baked into his calculations. Yeah. Nick Robertson, great to get your insights. Thank you. OK, that's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.